Colin, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent, Harry. How about you? I'm doing well, and I'm excited to chat with Marsha today. Marsha, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Nice to be here. Definitely. For those uh, watching on video, you've got a great background. I see degrees on the wall <laughs> and books, actual books. So books, it's a lot no better books, than yeah, my no white books. wall. And yeah. Colin doesn't yeah. have a bad background either. So <laughs> you're, you're already setting a high bar. So I'd love to give our listeners a little background about you. So your bio, Marsha, she's an investor in many early stage private companies and funds. In addition to her own investing, she's a venture partner with Mindshift Capital and a part of the investment committee for Next Wave Impact Fund. She's also a member of Golden Seeds, one of the largest angel groups in the U.S., Mindshift Capital and Golden Seeds focus on investing in women-led companies. She currently serves on the Small Business Capital Formation Advisory Committee to the Securities and Exchange Commission. She was the chair of the board of the Angel Capital Association from 2021 until 2023. She's also the founder and host of the Angel Next Door podcast about why and how people become angel investors. So quite the background. I left a couple things out, but is there anything I left out that our guests need to know about you? No, I did do a TED talk in um, at TEDx Charlotte in October of 2022 on how anyone can invest in change. It's all about mm, why and cool. how people can become angel investors, you know, regardless of your income or wealth. Very cool. So is it safe to say you are passionate about angel investing? <laughs> I guess that's, that's <laughs> you could say that. When people meet you on the street and they ask you what you do, or you know, if you kind of meet them in a more casual environment, what do you say? I say that I help make people's dreams come true. Ooh. That's usually a good conversation starter. Interesting. And how do you how do you do that? Well, by backing the entrepreneurs that are helping to make the change in the world that we all want to see. So I'm really passionate about seeing the change because when I first started doing angel investing, I was in corporate America. I didn't know anything cool and innovative was happening anywhere, let alone in my backyard in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I went to an angel investing meeting and I was like fascinated at mm. what I was seeing. So I thought, wow, this is really cool. And then I'm like, why aren't more people doing this? And I would talk to people and I'd be like, hey, what do you know about angel investing? They're like, never heard of it. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about your journey into angel investment. I know you've made a bunch of angel investments in the past, so maybe you can kind of just give, I'll ask you a few rapid fire questions and you can kind of give a, a brief overview of your career in angel investing. So how many angel investments have you made uh, around ballpark? Well, that's hard to say. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've invested directly into companies, but I've also invested in several funds because I really believe in diversification. So okay. That's kind of how I've gotten so much exposure to so many different mm, companies. Got it. So about how many funds are you in? Oh, probably like 30. 30 funds. Got it. And have you made a lot of direct angel investments or sort of focused more I on the I did, LP especially side? early on. I made mm -hmm. several, probably another 30. I found that when you just make direct investments, you're really not diversifying your portfolio. And it's hard. At, you know, you have to have a lot of money to be able mm -hmm. to invest uh, directly. Now, keep in mind, I've been investing for 12 years. So it's that this is all over a longer period of time. And in a lot of cases, you can get into funds now for much, 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 much lower dollar amounts than you could in the past. Yeah. And yeah. what type of uh, startups or funds are you sort of most interested? I really love anything that has to do with investing in the underrepresented founder. So mm -hmm. women, people of color, diversity has been proven to be the game winning combination in any startup. There's been lots and lots of studies, especially recently that have shown that a diverse team really brings home you know, a lot more revenue. They mm -hmm. 
are scrappier. They have diversity of everything, not just color and gender, but things like diversity of where they grew up or what kind of schools they went to or just where they live. And that brings a lot of innovation to a startup. Interesting. Well, we'll circle back to that because I think it's just conceptually super interesting. But I want to go back even further. You said you've been investing 12 years, which is a long time, more than most, I would say. Can we go back to your first investment and maybe sure. tell us a little about the, the story there? What happened? Oh, yeah, there's uh, a story for sure. So I didn't know anything from anything. and But I was in this angel group that was great. And so the one company in particular... I was like, oh, this is great because they kept winning pitch competitions. Mm -hmm. So I thought, mm -hmm. oh, they have to be, they have to be great, right? <laughs> They're winning all these pitch competitions. And so turns out that the founder, who was who was a very nice person, and the, the the company was good, you know, we did the diligence and everything. But then one day the founder just decided, you know what, I I don't want to do this anymore. And mm. that was it. Like, goodbye. And so <laughs> that company went under. But then the other company that I invested in at the same around the same time, they made a hardware that speech to text hardware that could interpret and in a speaker's feelings. It was one that you'd use like in call centers and stuff. It was really cool technology. Well, they ended up getting acquired then, so that was a that was a win. So you got one loser, one winner there That's um, right. on the, the the first stretch, which is good, and learn yeah. that maybe people that are great at pitching aren't necessarily the best at building companies too. Right. Yeah. So you got to be careful. Like just because it looks good on paper doesn't mean it's necessarily always good. Or in person, apparently. One of the bigger things you mentioned is you're on the SEC advisory committee. Maybe tell us a little bit about what, what do you guys advise them on? I mean, I know as an just, angel investor- Just so um, you know, Colin, oh. it's actually technically the Small Business Capital Formation Advisory okay. Committee to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Ah, I think that's the official name, right, Marsha? That, that is correct. Yes. And I, I have to <laughs> give right. my disclaimer that anything I say is my own view and not the view of the Securities All right. Exchange. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, back to Colin. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that interlude. We are covered. <laughs> CYA. On the front, you know, like typically when I think of regulation, when it comes to credit investing or like an angel investor, I think of accredited investor, you know, just like definitions almost of like what is allowed. But is that what it actually is? Tell us more. I'm just intrigued, like policy wise, what is up for debate? What's Absolutely. You know, uh, the accredited yeah. investor definition is a huge part of that. And that is something that is a very hot topic right now because it has not changed since 1982. So going on 41 years without a change to the definition. What is the for those current definition? Listeners, I'll oh, yeah. just uh, reiterate <laughs> the definition, which is in order to invest in a private company, you have to have a certain amount of income or wealth. And that level is $200,000 by yourself, $300,000 with a spouse or a partner, or a million dollars in net worth minus your home. And I'm not a fan of the definition for a lot of reasons, mainly because I don't think just because you have a certain amount of money, it means you're smart at investing. I believe in the sophistication part, which has a lot more to do with education. Mm, yeah. And I'd really like to see more people have to go through an education process, kind of like you have to in order to be a certified financial planner or something like that, just so that people are aware of the level of risk. They get yeah. to know a little bit more about what they can do in order to pick the companies that not just winning pitch competitions and that they're able to really feel a little bit more comfortable with where they're investing their money. And they need to subscribe to the Angel Next Door podcast and the Wannabe Angels podcast. Can we work <laughs> that exactly into right. the regulation yeah, yeah. or is that a yeah. bit uh, self-serving? Required, yeah. <laughs> one, one question on this, like in Europe, or at least in the UK, there's like some understanding that there's actually like tax advantaging 
for doing early stage investing. Yes, there is. Yeah. Is that I, I would love that personally in the US because obviously it encourages capital formation at early stage and that's great for you know business creation. Is that something that's of interest at all? Okay, so that's a whole other podcast episode that we could go into, but I'll <laughs> oh, okay. make it short. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There are certain states that do have a tax credit, like you're talking about, that happens in, in mm. the UK. There is a, a part of the tax code, it's called 1202, and it allows angels. Most angels don't know about this, so it's a big deal. So listen carefully. If you, have invested, if you have invested in a stock and you've held it for five years, and, and this is preferred okay. equity, not convertible note mm -hmm. yet. I'll get to that in a second. You will not have to pay capital gains on the gain if the, when the company exits. So this can be very advantageous to angels, but it is extra advantageous to the entrepreneur because it covers all stock. It's mm. part of the Qualified Small Business Stock uh, Initiative. So with entrepreneurs, those who have been working, they've probably taken little, if any, salary for a long time. Maybe then they start working for under market salaries and benefits. And so when they exit, they also would not have to pay the capital gains tax if they hold the stock for longer than five years and blah, 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 you meet all these different provisions. So what we're trying to do right now, and the Angel Capital Association has been working with Congressman Kustoff's office to put through a bill that will expand 1202, meaning that it would include now convertible notes, it would mm. include more than just a C-Corp um, type of company. So that has gotten put through the House. I was just in Washington, D.C. this week with the Angel Capital Association CEO, and we met with a couple of the staffers in different senators' offices, including Senator, Senator Cornyn of Texas, and he is putting it through the Senate. So, yes, there are lots and lots of things that can help to incentivize angels, but it's really to help incentivize all entrepreneurship. Got it. Interesting. So on the sort of regulatory side, is there anything that angel investors like myself or Colin can do to support these initiatives or just be aware? Or what do you think is kind of the best role for, you know, us to want to be angels to, you know, follow along? Or is there actual stuff we can do or just kind of, you know, one day maybe a new law will pass and we can potentially, you know, have better tax savings? Yeah, absolutely. You should definitely be following the Angel Capital Association on social mm -hmm. media. You can subscribe to our newsletter, which will give you a lot of information about what's happening. What we try to be is the like kind of the gold standard of angel investing when it comes to things like public policy, as we were talking about education and data. So mm -hmm. we are not an angel group. We don't invest. We don't put angel groups together or anything like that. Yeah. What we're trying to do is support and promote and help the angels and angel groups that are out there so that they can do their best work in what they're doing. So we're trying to kind of get yeah. anything out of the way and kind of lift, lift up the angels. Got it. Got it. So Angel Capital Association, I have to say, I imagine you probably get a lot of people pitching you because it sounds like maybe an angel group or an organization, right? right? But that you're actually more about supporting and promoting <laughs> angels. And uh, what, what would sort of be, you know, if you had to circle two or three things that are the biggest, you know, things that angels care about, or, you know, the biggest opportunities, I guess you would say too, it sounds like this, you know, sort of expanded 1202. Are there, are there other things that you're sort of thinking about or working on? Well, definitely getting the awareness out there. I think mm. that is probably the biggest problem that angels have. And I know that is one of my personal frustrations because as we talked about, you know, you can be doing this for a long time and you can have yeah. lots of investments and that's great. But 
we also as angels, we don't want to be the only one kind of sitting with our, you know, couple of friends around the table trying to yeah. support an entrepreneur when what you really want is a lot of people to help them because the mm -hmm. number one reason why companies go out of business is because they run out of money. Yeah. Well, would they run out of money if there were more people putting in just a little bit of money mm -hmm. and you could make it like a much bigger party to play from, right? So that's my big passion is to get more people to know that they can even participate in this asset class. And you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was pretty, it was very hard to diversify. It's much, mm -hmm. much easier right now. And I'm not saying it's easy, but there are a lot more options now than there were back then. Yeah. What do you think are the best ways to kind of get the awareness out there? Like, how do we tell more people about angel investing? I mean, I guess, like you said, the accredited investor, there's probably some people who know about angel investing, but aren't accredited. So I guess that's one option. And then is there another good option? I don't know. Shark Tank, other, other show. You know what I mean? I, I do like that kind of idea, though, right? Like, mm -hmm. just, you know, how, how do well, we get the word out about angel investing? You know, Shark Tank has definitely given people an idea of what angel investing is, but it's also given people the idea that you can only do it if you're a billionaire who flies in private planes. Mm. So that gets a little yeah. difficult to try to demystify that. Equity crowdfunding, which was allowed in 2016, is something that a lot of people have no idea exists. A lot of people mm -hmm. have heard of Kickstarter, Indiegogo, that's rewards-based crowdfunding. That's where you can buy something early. You might get a perk, like a t-shirt or something for doing it. But in 2016, the Securities and Exchange Commission changed the rules. And now you can invest, invest in a startup company for as little as $50. Typically, there's a, there's three companies that are have kind of taken the market share in this space, Republic, Start Engine and WeFunder. Yeah. And most of the things out there, you, it's probably like 100 or $250 would be the minimum. But a lot of people have no idea that this even exists. And you do get an actual part ownership yeah. of the company. It isn't like Kickstarter where you just get a t-shirt. Hmm. So I think yeah. building the awareness around that, because the rules only changed in 2016, it is still like early days. You know, the websites yeah. are trying their hardest to make sure that they're completely compliant with the SEC, which is great because they need to do that, obviously. But it means yeah. that sometimes the user experience is a little wonky. So that's, what I think, what people are really starting to work on now. And those those three websites have done a really good job. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I've invested in a few startups through, I mean, I guess we don't call them I guess, are they called crowdfunding or what, yeah. are, what are those three groups of sites? Crowdfunding, but there's so many different types of crowdfunding. Yeah. That it's very confusing. So yeah, I know I, I was, exactly. I was just thinking, I was like, I've literally recommended two startups that they use these sites and I've invested in a few, but I don't know what I would group, call the group of them, maybe crowdfunding. And, you know, I've even worked with a few startups who have had some pretty successful campaigns raising money on these yes. sites too. So I do Absolutely. think it yeah. is, you know, a good, and there's a lot of strategy and I think I'm sure there's a bunch of good blog posts and experts about those sites. But what do you think for, you know, let's talk about some of these, you know, I don't, I would say, you know, the non-billionaire angel investors, let's call them that. I think that's a, a nice right, way to right. put it, right? Like the normal people who are you're encouraging to get into angel investing, what advice for them or what do you tell them? What should they be thinking about or, or looking out for as kind of a starting, starting point? Always you want to start out slow. Don't write any checks. Don't be like me. Mm. <laughs> don't be writing checks. <laughs> in the first meeting you're in. You, know, you wanna just go and look around, find out what's going on in your own neighborhood. I always encourage people to just go to Google and type in startup events near me or something mm -hmm. like that. 
And there could be like pitch events or, or times that, you know, entrepreneurs are kind of showcasing what they're doing near you and you could go and, and just start to see. The other thing you can do is you can get involved by donating some of your time and, and talking to startups. You may have a level of expertise in something that a startup really needs. And it doesn't mean you have to be an IP attorney. It could be that you're really good at bookkeeping or you're really yeah. good at marketing or you're really good at social media. Oh, ah, startups need all of that badly. Yeah. So if, if somebody's willing to help them just a little bit, you know, that's a great way to get started too. I tend to agree. I think both Harry and I, in some sense, both started helping startups and getting equity. And then you're like, oh, there's a whole other world here, right? Which is, I think, you know, a whole nother conversation. But I, I agree. The uh, I, you know, I think everyone gets started with the first angel check in some way, like a friend reaches out or, so, you know, there's some kind of like connectivity of like you go and invest and then you kind of just do it. And then you're like, well, maybe I shouldn't have done it that way. I wrote too big of a check, which I, I did on my first one um, for sure. And now I've like tempered in how I do that. But anyway, I just, it's good to hear that uh, we're not crazy in the advice that we give to. What, you know, one question for you, I think, you know, one of the, the things that I've been seeing that's kind of a barrier just overall to like any capital formation is the cost of aggregation of capital, right? You know, both Harry and I have talked about this a lot around SPVs. Um, you know, Angelus is amazing of what it's done with right. democratizing SPVs. So it was just incredible, right? I mean, like I can remember four startups now, I can remember, you know, 10 plus years ago trying to raise capital it was like minimum check sizes were high because there's just a cost to all this. And now mm -hmm. things are different, the safe, all of these standardizations. But I think part of the, the hurdle of getting SPVs cheaper potentially, or just capital, formation general is like actually the regulation side of it. Like, cause I look at like blue sky filings, all this, like, is there like thoughts around that too, of like how to solve that? Because that's like the number one thing for me is like, if you get the cost of formation to near zero, the, the amount of investment will go way up in my mind. Right. That's a tough one. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you were familiar with the company Assure, but they were doing SPVs yeah. and they went out of business. Unfortunately, I think just for exactly the reasons you said, the costs were just very high. There's a lot of regulatory. And so it's it's challenging. The amount of fraud that actually happens in angel investing is very, very low. But, you know, we have to have these companies, you know, filing properly and, you know, doing all these things. And when you put an SPV together, you know, there has to be some legal documents and that costs money with attorneys. So, and there's filings and, you know, then you have to have then, now you have an entity and you're paying taxes on the entity. I mean, it just goes kind of goes on and on. So it's really hard to bring that cost down. Yeah. Sounds like there's major overhaul in general, like because basically the investment entity lives within the framework of like the business entities. Right. Like there isn't a concept of like an investment only entity or something like that. I think the, the you know, one of the questions we always like to ask, too, is like what what is like one of the like investments that's gone like bust the fastest like for you like you've invested and then it's gone bust the fastest fortunately i haven't had any that went bust fast yeah. but you know just like the whole idea of you know the running out of money thing like oh no we're fine we're fine we're fine but then all of a sudden it's like oh wait we're not fine <laughs> and we can't make payroll on friday and you're like well, why didn't you say something sooner, you know? Yeah. And then things start to really go downhill after that. So I haven't had any that were like an overnight bust. We did actually invest in a company through Next Wave Impact Fund and, and we had it, within six months, we had an exit that was positive. So that was probably the fastest turnaround I've had on anything, even a company going, going under. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of fun. 
Very cool. Well, you know, before we wrap here, you know, I know, and you mentioned earlier about, you know, investing in diverse founders and, you know, from reading your bio, it seems like a big mission of yours has been investing in diverse teams and founders and sort of also how that leads to, you know, better returns for you. So talk a little bit about your experience there and why you're so passionate. I know you're also about getting more women access to capital. So would love to hear more about your thoughts there and, you know, so sort of inspire others to join on this mission of yours. Yeah, we could go on and on about that for a long time. But like, if you think we've come about... up with like five other podcast ideas while we've been talking, <laughs> exactly. so Colin, hopefully you're taking notes. <laughs> I mean, what? if you think no. about the things that that women will tend to invest in, it are a lot of things that are specific to women. Not always, but in some cases, and especially when it comes to women's health, it is something that we've actually heard from male VCs mostly is that they don't want to talk about women's health or, you know, certain body parts of women in their Monday morning meetings. So that therefore they don't want to have these investments because mm. that's just not something that they want to discuss. So, I, I mean, it's, t it's tough. It's tough when you don't have enough women investing and a lot of women are out pounding the pavement to a lot of either male angel groups or predominantly male angel groups or male VCs. So we need to definitely change the dynamics there. People tend to gravitate toward investing in the people that look like them. So if we could get more people who are female, more people who are black, Latino, I mean, uh, we need a way more diverse investor base before we can really start to make an impact. Because if you look at the statistics, they haven't changed a ton over the last couple of years, even with everything happening with COVID and things going online and things have become easier and more accessible, we still aren't moving the needle enough. I think a lot of that like comes back to like the whole rich get richer piece of this yes. thing where it's yeah. like capital accumulation happens where there's already capital, right? And so that's the, to me, is like, it's like a multi-generational trend that has to break in some sense, right? It's just not, an, it's not an overnight thing, unfortunately. The, the other piece of it I have like, seen is less even just about the gender or like piece of it is really more about because I work with like a ton of marketplaces and all under the sun, every kind of service thing you could work with. And things that fall into like the home category are like pretty incredible, interesting businesses and just the amount of money, like childcare, house cleaning, laundry, all of these things. And it is just categorically less interesting, I would say to investors, like they just either the unit economics don't work not something we do, you know, and I, that to me is always about more of like the experience, like what, what do you use every day in your life? And you tend to care about those things and therefore you'll invest in those things, right? Like you're no surprised right. that software tools for people building software seems to be huge because what, like, yeah, you use it every day. Like that's what you want to invest in. Right. So yeah, I, I, I hear you on that and I, I don't know how to fix it, but it just, it always hard for me to see great founders building like really awesome solutions in a space that just is overlooked, right? In mm -hmm. some sense, it's just, it's not sexy. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Well, we definitely appreciate all the work that you're doing out there for founders and angel investors and to move the ecosystem forward. Before we hit our trending Twitter threads, is there anything else you want to mention or folks want to follow all your work? I think we're going to link to your podcast and your LinkedIn and uh, you know anywhere else, all of the other uh, sort of resources that we mentioned. I think you mentioned the newsletter that you have for ACA too. Yeah, you can just go to my website, which is okay, just marshallwood.com. On there, I don't know if you guys saw that I did a wrap couple rap battles. 
Ah, uh, you know angel, what? Angel you're investor rem- versus venture capitalist. And then I just did one priced equity versus a convertible note versus a safe. Whoa. Just wow, something fun, a, you know. Quite, 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 that, quite the wrap. All right. We'll see if we can maybe even uh, editing. We'll see if we can even add that wrap to the very end of this episode. So if people want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, can't, can't leave their seats. So awesome, Marsha. Well, let's, so we're going to bring a couple tweets up here on the screen and then we'd love to get your quick take and reaction to them, if that sounds good. All right. The first one I'm going to put up on the screen here and I'll read it off. It's from Darren Marble. He says, would you accept a check from someone who invested in your direct competitor? What do you think, Marsha? Oh, that's a good question. You know what? I just had a conversation with somebody recently about this. So there's two schools of thought. Of course, they're completely opposite and probably cover the most of the spectrum. But some people think, well, if you're going to invest in something and then you're going to invest in a direct competitor, like why would you do that? Because now you have two companies that are competing against each other. But the other school of thought is that you're investing in that same space. So yeah. you don't know that the one company that you picked is yeah. necessarily going to be the one that's going to make it. So maybe you want to invest in both of them because now your odds are better that if you really believe in the space itself, not necessarily take the companies out of it. If you really believe in whatever the space is, then I'd say, yeah. Yeah. It goes, it goes back to this whole like diversification thing. You know, it's not like anyone asks right. if you're uh, investing yeah. in the S P 500, are you concerned about <laughs> investing in competitors? It's like, uh, no, yeah. because like, I would just, you want the lower volatility, right? So yeah, I've also, you know, I've also never been, you know, I've founded my own media company, but it's always been more of a, you know, what I would call small business, you know, lifestyle business. I've never gone the sort of tech VC founder route. I mean, I work with a lot as an advisor and investor and I've always found, you know, you kind of have to be really ultra competitive, you know, like, oh my God, you know, I'm at war. No one can touch my business. So it's like, I feel like they can be very offended easily. Like, oh my God, you invested in a competitor. What if they see, you know, slide seven of our deck from last year? You know what I mean? Like, I think that matters zero, but I do feel like it is a little tricky to navigate. So if you're in kind of that, you know, that position, I I guess like, I don't think it's a big deal, but I could see, you know, why it would bother some people. Well, and I just say, if you're the founder and you know that one of your investors invested in your competitor, then I think it's very important that you are very upfront and, and you have conversations with the investor and say, Hey, listen, you know, what I'm doing and the confidential information that you're getting has to remain confidential. You know, it can't, and, you know, and angels don't like to sign NDA. So that that's kind of out. But you want to be able to make sure that if and if you don't necessarily trust the person, then mm-hmm. that's a whole other conversation you need to be having with your with your board. Yeah. And I see a reply here from Martins. He says, yes, it might mean that the competitor might not be doing that well. So, I mean, that's another you know reason, too. If you believe in the space, one company's mm-hmm. not doing great. Hey, here's another team that you can, you know, give it a go with. Right. That's right. Awesome. Next one is going to be here from Gail Wilkinson at Vitalize. And she's actually a former guest of Wannabe Angels. I think she was in episode 10. So we had a great episode with her, if anyone's interested. And she says, I'm seeing lots of feedback that VCs are telling founders that they can't be solo and need a co-founder. Thoughts on this, Marsha? Oh my gosh. Okay. You have to add this to the list. (laughs) Wow. We need to have another podcast episode on this. I have talked to so many people about this very topic. The co-founder thing I do believe in. I do think people should have a co-founder. However, I think it's really more about the team. So if mm. there if there's a founder who surrounded themselves with the right team and like maybe let's say at the end of the day that's like three or four people, I mean, it, the definition of a co-founder can be kind of what you make it, you know? Right. It's a matter of do you have the right people 
to get the company to grow and, and thrive. And so that could be founder, co-founder, it could be founder with three or four, you know, VPs of whatever you want to call yourselves. I mean, at this point, you're a startup. You just have to be surrounded with the right amount of skills and gumption and all of those things. And you can't all be the same like personality type either. You can't have like five visionaries trying to get a company yeah. off the ground. It's yeah. not going to happen. There's nobody there to execute. You need the COO, right? But you also can't have five COOs without the visionary because where are you going? So, yeah. Yeah. The, the interesting thing I think with, as you scale team size is your speed goes down. Like just, yes. it's just, it's just a function of more people like, you know, cooks in the kitchen. Right. And there's an element of being a solo business operator, which I'm sure Harry has some experience doing, starting his own thing and me doing my own thing too, is like, you make the decision and you move forward. Like, like there's just good or bad. High speed to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is. But that's the point is like, you can move yeah. faster. Right. And you can make unilateral decision-making. So I, I tend to just not buy it. I think there's probably some bias in that some solo founders are just not equipped to run a business, which I think is like a fundamental problem that we've talked about on the podcast before is like, there's a difference between product innovation and running a business, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't know how to do your like accounting well, or like manage cash, like you're going to struggle as a founder, right? But you can also hire for that. So anyway, that, that's just kind of like my thing is like, I think they're just two different things. Like, what are you optimizing for? Like founder to exit or like, founder to innovation. Like they're just they're very different things. I think people are looking at. Yeah. I don't know of any founder though that's done it themselves and all gotten to an exit. That doesn't happen very often. So well, they need Mark Zuckerberg. there's some data below it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he didn't not alone. Himself. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, mean, I would say, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. I like the way you put it, Marsha, like who cares about the title of co-founder or not? Mm. Like, you know, people, you know, mm. start the company and bring a co-founder on, you know, like two years later. Right. And they're like, this is my co-founder. I'm like, okay. You know, I just wanted to give them right. the title, yeah. but I do think there is something very compelling, right. As a founder, I mean, you're basically selling a vision, right? Like there's no company, there's no product yet. And so if you can convince investors to believe in that vision, if you can convince people to come and join you and work 80 hours a week, right? Like that's kind of a lot of what the mm -hmm. early days of startups is. So there is something around building that team and building those people around you, right? That, you know, I think that's kind of, I don't care if they're a co-founder or not, but, you know, can you convince people to come on this journey with you? Because that's like a lot of what the early days of startups is. I totally agree. Awesome. Well, Marsha, that was fun. We really appreciate you coming on and we'll uh, leave links in the show notes to everything. And maybe one of us uh, will be on your podcast soon to talk angel uh, yeah. investing. That would be awesome. Love it. All right. Appreciate it, Marsha. Take care. All right. Thanks for having me.